Um, All right, let me go call the dog in because yeah, we're yeah, gonna get do started and then he's going to no be worries. outside barking and doing dog shit. So right <laughs> I have to chase him back in the house because mm. uh, once he gets a squirrel, uh, he gets fixated on a squirrel. He can't get it out of his brain. Um, I wish I loved anything uh, as much um, as dogs love squirrels. <laughs> so I had to close the curtains. I gave him a bully stick and took away. We have a, a jingle bell that he hits when he wants to go out. So I had to take that away. So oh. he can't uh, <laughs> sit there ringing the bell over and, and over while we're trying to talk. His, his signal to you. Last Bros, episode, season two, episode 12, episode six of Will and I hanging out recording this. I am always, I'm Jeff. I'm Will. And uh, yeah, let's talk about season two, episode 12, inverting the pyramid of success, or as I like to call it, one last mustache ride of season two. <laughs> uh, okay, wait, 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 listen, I think mustache ride has a like a cunnilingus association with it, Will. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, well, that's a good. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just, I'm just thinking of one last ride, and Ted's got an awesome mustache. So we're taking one. I don't, I don't Bitch know where your stash, mind is going. Ted's bitch and stash. Amazing, amazing stash. It's kind of been a shame to see him without the stash. Uh, you know, doing like the Emmys and, and yeah. all the press tour and things like that. Uh, so he's got a lot of work to do. Grow back for. Man, so I did. What an amazing twist that would be. If season three, he comes back with no mustache. I have realistically thought it was a possibility based on a conversation that they have in this episode. Um, you know, I'm, I love that you always make it a good point of to, to get the ep- name of the episode because I always forget um, to kind of like actually look at and process. So I have a whole note about inverting the, pro- the pyramid in my notes for today, but it's self-evident. It's right there. It was in the, it was in the name of the episode. Yeah, so in this episode, uh, Richmond gets their final chance to win promotion as Ted deals with the fallout of Trent Krim's painfully honest expose. So coming out of last week, um, you know, we we followed Ted and Sharon um, kind of coping with the departure and saying their goodbyes. Um, Sam was wined and dined by Edwin Akufo. Um, and was unsure about what his future might hold. And Rebecca told him not to leave without telling him not to leave. Um, we had some uh, Roy and Keeley moments, um, continuing to you know deal with their relationship and navigate hurdles, including Nate trying to kiss Keeley um, and them sharing those details. And Keeley revealing that Jamie told her that he loved her still. Um, you know, we had the moments at the photo shoot and kind of left them. I guess it felt like it left them a little bit in a limbo state coming out of that episode. But before we talk about this week's episode, um, do we have any uh, emails? Do. I think I saw we had one from Andrew. Mr. Andrew Carlson, friend of the show, uh, sent us an email. This pertains to last week's episode, which we just talked about and recapped there. Um, and then we'll see what type of a segue it provides for our conversation about this week's episode. So let's check in with... Andrew. Hello, you two Ted Last Bros. 
Um, lovely episodes as always, um, as I had mentioned to you guys through text, real emotional. Um, but thankfully your last one wasn't as emotional. Um, despite it being a really fantastic and incredibly emotional episode that was, I really enjoyed, um, especially at the end, how Ted was able to kind of turn it back and leave her the way she kind of wanted it left. Um, that was nice. Um, but I did want to kind of push back a little bit on one of the things Will said, um, about Ed not being there as much for his, um, kid, um, kind of, using his team players as like surrogate children. Um, and I definitely, I don't think I've gotten that vibe as much. I think he definitely has kind of done it, especially like in season one, out of necessity more than anything. Um, because a, he's in the other, a different country than his, um, kid. Uh, but also because he's divorced, he's obviously, he doesn't get to see his kid as much anymore. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily by choice. Um, so yeah, I just want to push back a little bit. Uh, you guys, you guys know, I love you. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that was, um, a really interesting and, uh, well-told point. So thank you guys as always for your wonderful podcast. Have a great day. Will directly related to that, um, in our conversations, I think that, uh, with everything, you know, what is great about this show, what I've done this on many of our episodes, you're just sort of like kind of pulling out metaphors or pulling out conversation topics that it feels like maybe it's relating to without overtly bringing up. And you have mentioned um, kind of this idea of abandonment or the abandonment of his son. Um, and that was something that at the time didn't, I certainly didn't disagree with. Um, I just think it's interesting what conversations people kind of focus on as aspects of it so a portion of of this kind of idea of like abandoning my son or am I abandoning my son is it abandonment I don't think so but a kind of a form of neglect that's been a that's been one that I I've been looking for since you mentioning it because it didn't kind of immediately jump out to me partially because I'm just like Ted Superman he's perfect you know he's a great dad he's everything but what astounded me was in this episode I think that it absolutely confirmed what you were talking about. So not pushing back on what Andrew just said at all. Um, Cause I don't think it, yeah, I, I agree with him. I, well, I don't think it's abandonment, but I do think, I mean, I wrote, wow, will the abandoned parent metaphor really was a core of Nate's issue. Nice work. Um, it was a note that I made. So I, I, I could see maybe where Andrew's coming from after last episode, but I really actually do think at the end of this episode, they really kind of connected a lot of dots, uh, emphasizing this idea that while Ted maybe isn't abandoning his son, it would be really easy for him to feel like he's neglecting his son, which would tie into his own issues of maybe feeling neglected or abandoned by his own father. So um, that. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, uh, thanks for the email, Andrew. Those, um, them's fighting words, I think. <laughs> um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I, you know what, what I, I like about what Andrew said is that, you know, you, uh, you and I, we, we, we run a, we want to, we run a book club together for the last like year and a half. 
And one of the books that you brought to the forefront um, that I had never read before was a book called Day Tripper. And when we read that book, and Andrew's a part of our book club, when we had these discussions, the book we found registered with everybody on very different levels. And one of the big discussion points of why we love this book so much is because um, it spoke to us all differently. And it spoke to us that potentially at different stages of our lives. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, uh, there's a very similar parallel here. There was a lot of uh, discussions in that book about, you know, parenting and father-son relationships and, um, you know, what are, what are relationships mean? What are relationships with our parents mean? And Ted Lasso has a lot of those exact same ideas, I think. And that's why maybe it doesn't necessarily register for Andrew the same as it does for me. And maybe it registers for you, but a little bit differently because we have different experiences and we're at different stages in our lives. And so the interpretation can come in differently. Or maybe, um, you know, because of some of my own personal experiences, it puts me in a spot to be really keen and um, narrowing in on some of these ideas as they're starting to come to the forefront, just as you've been able to narrow in on other ideas that are maybe more personal to you. Um, and so it really, all of these kind of have spoken to me a lot, you know, from having a father who was constantly on business trips for weeks at a time and, you know, a bit of absenteeism in there um, on his part, despite also him trying to, you know, get involved in our school and our sports or things like that. So there's this kind of ebb and flow on how much my own father was involved in, you know, our lives and the things that are going on, um, despite constantly being gone. But then also um, being, you know, having a job and having young children and going on business trips myself and feeling that same pull from being far away from my kids but ultimately all of those have been been choices. And Ted said it like so perfectly mm-hmm. when he was talking to the team and giving the speech where he said, you know, he's talking about choices. And he explicitly says um, during this that it was a choice to move halfway around the world away from my family. Um, and I, re- you know, in the last two years, I made my own personal changes in my career um, to a- change my work schedule and not be, um, constantly, you know, working six days a week out away and only getting to see my kids for 10 minutes at bedtime or 10 minutes in the morning. Um, I purposely made those choices, but it took a lot of work to be able to put myself in a position. So yes, just like Ted, like not everything is completely, you know, in his control. This was a job and an opportunity that was presented to him that took him halfway across the world, but he still made the choice to leave and to move away from his, his son. And, it's a lot of this has played out in the conversation with Nate at the end. And you could just, the words coming out of Nate's mouth, as much as, you know, Nate has searched for a father figure because he struggled with the relationship of his father and that abandonment, abandonment, a lot of the words coming out of Nate's mouth are words that you could also have just as easily heard coming out of Ted's son's mouth, perhaps when he's a few years older mm-hmm. and uh, able to understand his feelings and articulate them a little bit more. Um, so I, I still kind of hold strong to this idea, um, you know, that this, that Ted's has a dual, like is dually grappling with the abandonment issues of his own father and still worrying about the abandonment of his own son and what his relationship with Nate has meant to that. And it's really punctuated with Nate being upset that the picture that he gave Ted for Christmas isn't up on the wall 
in his office. Now we know that that picture is up on Ted's mantle at home, right? When he saw that, when he had that panic attack, when he was getting ready for the funeral is that picture that Nate gave him for Christmas is right there. Um, and I often think about like I just very similar things with, um, you know, with my father growing up where we'd give him something or he'd have a picture and we would never see it again. Uh, and then, you know, go visit his office, you know, once a year or something like that, and then see these pictures or other things like that up in his office that we don't always see the other things that are going on. And when you're a child in that situation, you tend to assume the worst. Um, you tend to assume that they don't care about you. Or they're not thinking about you when like they're human beings as well. And they have a lot going on. And, um, you know, Ted, Ted's feeling guilty about that and trying to explain to Nate that um, if I didn't tell you enough, how much I, you know, how much I care about you, I, I, I'm sorry. Like those are the same words that he should and could be saying to his son. I think um, it so, speaks to just like the, really high quality nature of what art can do in general but what this show does really well and i think the day tripper parallel is really really apt i think really great art um it's not saying one thing it's saying a lot of different things and you find or pick up on those things at different points in your life so again it makes total sense that as a parent someone could see that as a main focus point of conversation earlier in the season um you weren't like incredibly thrilled with the Roy Keeley episode about them needing space in their relationship. But as somebody in a relationship um, that's kind of dealing with that same conversation, it was particularly resonant to me. So it always, everybody gets different things at different times. Um, and I, yeah, I just think that that speaks to the show, but Andrew, that was a great question because it did tie us right into all of this stuff. So Will, do oh, yeah. you think we should get to the heart of this neat Ted conversation? Absolutely. And just to build on what you just said about like the, the Roy Keeley, it was the same episode where I was upset about the direction that we're going with Nate. And and now looking back at that uh, headspace, that's our very, you know, our very first discussion that we ever had. Um, that episode seems to be now kind of pretty critical to the mm -hmm. rest of the season. So I can look back on it in a much more positive light because it planted or built on a lot of seeds that continued to pay dividends through the, you know, the next set of episodes all the way up to the finale where we got you know, we'll talk about Roy and Keeley in a few minutes, I imagine. Um, but we we got this kind of big moments moments with Nate um, and the meltdown there. So I said a lot of words about um, you know the the Ted and Nate moment in the locker room. But what are your thoughts on that? Do you have anything to add to that? Well, so yeah, we know that Nate um, is the one who had said that there. You know, Ted had the panic attack and. I, I mean, leading up to the Nate conversation, I really liked the conversation that Ted had with Beard because it kind of touched on what we talked about last week, which is this idea of pushing um, people. And Ted says this awesome thing, um, something to the effect of cats, babies, and apologies. I got to let them come to me. And I loved Beard's response is that, well, some people need a little push. And I thought that was really interesting because I don't think Ted necessarily excels at pushing people. I think he excels at inspiring people. I think both of those are different ways to maybe create a sense of action within somebody to either push them, but I think a healthier way of doing it is inspiring people, which is what I think Ted does. So I think that there's an interesting conversation to be had, even just there at looking at the difference between pushing and inspiring. But I really liked the way that Ted approached the conversation with Nate because what he said is what have I got to learn here? And he said, you know, like, you're clearly upset. What do I have to learn here? And 
I think that that's a really healthy way to bring up a conversation. It's not saying, Hey, why are you mad? It's not using you words. It's using I words. It puts the, maybe the, the problem on his own hands and, and allows Nate to open up about this uh, thing. So like right off the bat, I think that was a really, really important thing. And I guess. I really, I, re- yeah. I really like when back to what you said, where beard said he needs to push him uh, beard uh, punctuated that by saying, because uh, Ted brushes it off and says it's not gonna, it's not gonna help, uh, it's not gonna help Nate, and he says no, it's gonna help you. Mm-hmm. Like Ted, you need to do this because your mustache is gonna pop off if you don't push to address this. Because I can see the stress boiling over in you. I really like that too. I guess before we get into the heart of that conversation about the Nate and Ted thing, I just one other thing that inverting the pyramid, the name of this episode, which is the book that Beard is reading the whole time, inverting the pyramid, tying into Nate obsessively standing there. Uh, looking at the pyramid of highly of high success, um, the pyramid of success. Yeah, yeah. So it was like, the title was a combination of the book title "Inverting the Pyramid" and uh, John Wooden's "Pyramid of Success," which would be deprioritizing competitive greatness and elevating industriousness, friendship, loyalty, cooperation, enthusiasm, which is exactly the difference in Nate and Ted's way of thinking and looking about success and the way to go about things. So I thought that was just like a great title, a great moment um, for Nate to be standing there. Great usage of the books that people are reading as a way of uh, highlighting the conversation. But yes, I think that's kind of sets the stage for this conversation they're having, which is one rooted around neglect and a different sense of priorities and how one should coach and lead others. Yeah. What I mean, yeah. How did you feel about it? I, I like that a lot too. And I'm glad that you picked it up. I found myself just Googling the pyramid of success and reading through it. And there's the exact same point of like, Nate's starting all the way up here at competitive greatness. And he's forgetting all these things. And Ted has spent the last two years building up all of these building blocks. And um, I really enjoyed when, uh, just when Ted was having that speech with the uh, with the team about it. And he's quoting John Wooden, but then doesn't call him John Wooden because uh, it's just like his, his name doesn't matter. It's John Obi-Wan Gandalf yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or, or whatever. Um, I like that that was just kind of thrown away because it's not just hanging on to just like this one person's ideology. It's just like, look, this could come from anybody. This could come from John Wooden or o- Obi-Wan Kenobi or Gandalf, whoever. Um, but this is this is an important point. The other thing that I just wanted to go back to also was when when they were having the Diamond Dogs assemble in the office and uh, Roy had just shared some details and then Nate felt like he had to confess something. And then, you know, Ted and, and, and coach Beard are kind of bracing for themselves. Cause they're, I think Ted is shocked and thinking that Nate's about to make this revelation. And then he just reveals to Roy that he tried to kiss Keely and Roy's just like, yeah, whatever. I, you're fine. It's no big deal. He's like, I'm still fuming at Jamie, but it's for Nate. It's like, it's no big deal. You made a mistake. Life, life goes on. And that just kind of fed to fuel this fire um, that's been burning inside Nate this entire episode. And um, the last few episodes of this realized entire season of this inferiority complex that he's dealing with. To, like he's so much less of a man than Jamie that like he actually kissed Keely and Roy's like, yeah, I don't care. Whatever. You're not, you're, you're nothing. You're, you know, you're not a threat at all. Um, but all Jamie did was say a couple of words and he wants to, you know, kill him basically. And even though he forgave him, he's still fuming mad about the whole thing. 
Um, so that I thought that's that's interesting, just kind of building up what's going on with Nate and what's happening with him. But we also see throughout the episode, Nate's hair continues to get more grayer and, more and gray. gray. Yeah. Uh, kind of every time we see him, like he's being eaten up on the inside, like all of this stress and guilt and anger and all of these other emotions that he's got going on. Um, I assume you interpreted that the same to the point where we see him at the very end of the episode, that he's just gone completely gray um, and maybe just the stress or this kind of inner, the, his inner demons have kind of fully consumed him at this point. What did you think about that? Yeah, I, I I think that, and I think that um, all of those kind of demons and the stress, all those negative emotions, all of that is a manifestation of what feels like to me a big heart of this episode was, but also the season, which is just the word inadequacy or the feeling inadequacy. Um, I think that really Nate's big thing is this feeling of inadequacy, like he next to his you know in terms of his parents um the players you know like ted the suit ted got you or you're not doesn't matter that you tried to kiss keely um or that he doesn't get recognized for his successes but then i also think that it's a really interesting kind of triple narrative because what roy is dealing with in this issue is a sense of inadequacy or a sense of like a concern for being inadequate um or kind of relegated to the side with keely's you know, professional thing, which we'll talk about later, um, or Roy's own inadequacies um, are highlighted by Jamie's kind of success in what Roy sees his own inadequacies as. And then, it, you know, Ted's inadequacies as a father, um, all of that, you know, just the, the manifestation of how that does affect everybody. And I think that with Nate, we're seeing that sense of inadequacy, that blockage happen and a negative way of dealing with it um, is as the way that he's dealing with it. Kind of going back to the last issue, last episode when he spit on the mirror, I feel like that was a sign of like creating a normalization in an unhealthy way, justifying an unhealthy action by owning it and justifying it. Um, and I think that's what he's doing with Ted, you know, like he sees everybody believe and so he has to tear the sign for believing um, he's, you know, he's really, it's just like the backwards way of dealing with, with everything. Um, and it's, you know, I think it just comes from a, a dealing with a blockage in an unhealthy way. And I just think what's really impressive is how rapidly unlikable he's become down to this, that night, that idea of like, well, let's get to work on, you know, Nate's false nine. And he's like, we'd be fools not to. And it's like, God, you're such an ass. Like, yeah, he's really hanging on to kind of all these all these negative ideas and yeah, the false nine. Like we talked about last week, Nate feeling like Ted's taking all of the credit for everything he does. And we just see more in this episode that Ted isn't is going out of his way to not take the credit. He's every single time he talks about the false nine is is Nate's false nine, is Nate Nate's the great. false nine. And Ted's trying to be supportive, even though he knows what Nate did he's still trying to be supportive and he still wants to believe in, in Nate and um, Nate interprets it as he's trying to set him up to fail. He's trying to put all of the blame on Nate when, when this strategy, um, if the strategy inevitably won't fail and Nate is naturally assuming everybody is going to screw up. He's yelling at him on the sidelines and cussing at them. Um, you know, he's wearing his, he's now wearing an all black suit almost to try to mimic 
Roy. Roy Kent wearing black suits while everybody else is still just wearing coaching gear because he wants to just, he's doing everything he can to try to build himself up and make himself appear, you know, bigger and stronger and, um, you know, more important than everybody else. To that connection um, right there, the, um, you know, kind of dealing with this, Roy and Nate dealing with inadequacy in different ways in this episode. And one of the things I, you know, kind of like, I like the the metaphor of it taking this toll on Nate, how unhealthily he's dealing with it because Roy, you know, when the pictures of the magazine come up and he's not in any of them, the way that he deals with that is by going to talk to people. And he says like, Hey, I hurt my feeling, you know, my one feeling I, I, my one singular feeling. Yeah. But yeah. like just this idea <laughs> of like, you know, here's how other people deal with this thing. And there's healthier ways than internalizing it and destroying the relationships and burning bridges around you. And I, I really liked just sort of highlighting Roy healthily dealing with that. Yeah. I mean, you can still see it in some other places, like when, when Keely tells him about the PR firm, one of his immediate responses is you're not going to have time for me anymore. Right. She's like, you know, knock it off. So that kind of keeps seeping out, but I absolutely loved his, his diamond dogs moment and how, how hard it was for him to ask for that. And then they have their conversation and then, you know, the diamond dogs uh, disassemble and he's like, wait, so, so sometimes when the diamond dogs assemble, it's just, it's just gathering around and talking about your problems, but not actually solving anything. And they're like, yeah. And he's like, that's pretty cool. And they're like, Oh my God, we got him. We got him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Uh, Such a great moment. I was just, yeah, like, you know, I, I mentioned it last episode, but just like the way that when we're upset and not dealing with things vulnerably and honestly, the way it kind of creates a blockage and Nate, or it, it allows us to create narratives that we start seeing when they're not there. And, and the narratives that Nate was seeing as he was freaking out at Ted in that conversation and how he was just going for the jugular um, was so hurtful. Um but it, it this this you know this is just several moments of the quote but you know he said I, I tried to get your attention back to make you like me again you know because everybody loves you and and that reminded me of uh something i had read years ago which um i ended up looking up and finding which is this idea that um oh phones um why ignoring someone hurts more than actually bullying somebody um there's a doctor named Ginny Brockus who had done some work I don't want to say that this is based on a study which people always say like I read this study um because I looked for uh citations for a study and I didn't see it but um what I had read years ago what I then found again is that worse still studies have shown that the pain of being ignored is worse than being bullied you are experiencing social pain, which you feel when you're being ignored, overlooked, or rejected. The problem being social pain is very real because it shares common neural pathways to physical pain. Um, but just the idea that ignoring someone or removing a sense of social support, um, you know, like, I don't think Ted was ignoring Nate, but he had created this narrative where like, you were very, very important. And then based on Ted's panic attacks and the own things going on in his life he wasn't able to keep up that same level of interest with somebody and so this feeling of being ignored blew up and it became this thing of like you know i'm not important to you and all this other stuff and i i think that it's just 
I love that it brought me back to thinking about that. Um, you know, like I love working in a public space and having lots of customers that are friends, but you know, sometimes you don't have the bandwidth to be able to give people the energy that you normally do. And I always really stress about worrying that I'm making people feel like I don't like them anymore or something just by virtue of being more busy or having more things going on. And it's, it's a dangerous thing. And I, I like that, you know, it's, it's, I don't think Nate is coming out of nowhere and just being a, just seeing shit. That's not there. It, it's speaking to his inadequacy and his damage, but you know, he is, he's hurt. Um, and he's not dealing with it well. Yeah, I mean, when they first introduced Nate kind of uh, being, you know, we talked a lot about Nate being an asshole back in Headspace and where that was going to go and uh, bothered him. But now when we reach this point, when we, when everything, all the words coming out of Ted's mouth, uh, all the words coming out of Nate's mouth, I felt bad for him. I stopped being angry at him and I just felt bad for him because of everything that's kind of built up to this and hindsight's always 2020 and it's it's preventable to a degree but like that's that's kind of what happens you know that's when kind of the results of ted taking on nate as this as this surrogate son to get back to that point is you can't you can't commit yourself to somebody and then kind of lose sight of of helping them and that's a similar Mm -hmm. to raising a child like you can't, you, you, you know, bring a child into this world and you start investing time and energy. And then, you know, you fly halfway across the world to be away from them, no matter how much you tell yourself you want to care and continue to be for them, be there for them. You're not. And so the same thing has happened with Ned, with Nate, as Ted cultivated this relationship with them, Ted did kind of abandon him and it's, it's not completely his fault, but it's the circumstances that happen. So um, all this stuff that's built up to, to Nate, doing everything he did is um, kind of, it was inevitable based off of all of his history and everything from the beginning of the show and from his relationship with his parents and the team always making fun of him and how hard he's had to work to build up to this point. Um, And I just felt bad for him. And I wish that he had maybe spent some more time with Dr. Sharon uh, before she left and, and, you know, seek some therapy and, and talked about his problems out, out loud, like, like Ted did. And if Ted, you know, Ted talked to the team about how he should have been more honest with them out up front. And in the last episode, when Ted told the coaching staff about the panic attack, um, you know, this was the journey that he had to take to get to this point. But if he had talked about it and been honest with the team earlier and been honest with the coaching staff and maybe had some more of these conversations about mental health earlier, that could have prevented Nate from reaching the point that he did because he would have you know, potentially been able to inspire Nate to follow a similar path. I think it's a really good point. Um, we never saw Nate do- see Dr. Sharon and it would have been amazing to do that. And uh, that didn't occur to me until you just mentioned that, but there's a road that could have been pursued there. I do. I think that like, you know, it's very difficult to reach out. I think it was hard for Ted when someone's mad at me, I don't, want to have to be like hey what did i do you know like that's you feel bad and you're nervous about what's going to happen um so i think there's always some onus on the person to need to bring up if they're having an issue which ned didn't do nate didn't do we keep doing that um but ted helped him bring it out which is good but i think on the person that's upset um when somebody apologizes there has to be some willingness to move on 
Um, I think that it maybe also we have to take into account that maybe it takes time to heal. But what I thought was interesting is that Ted apologized and then tried to make him feel included even after that, as they scored the goal after that conversation. Ted went over and patted Nate on the shoulder while Nate was sitting there grumpily in the chair. And when they won the game, Roy went over and tried to hug him or or put his arm around him or something. And Nate also rejected that. So at some point it became clear that this blockage he has is, you know, it's not a, you know, not, I don't want to throw the word psychosis around, but it puts glasses on everything. And it, he was unable to come back at that point. We're talking like Anakin, you know, episode three style um not able to see and kind of come back to the light side so uh i, I thought Instead that of killing was small children he ripped up the believe sign which hurts just as much but i'm not a dad so i don't know <laughs> um, <laughs> um but yeah I, I just that that was an interesting moment like it kind of spoke to how far gone he is with his ability to come back and not you know forgive someone who's hurt their feelings yeah but you know what? It does feel good in a show that is, that is, you know, kind of made its way, especially this season. Um, but obviously, a lot of last season too, at subverting your expectations and doing things maybe that are not necessarily not necessarily always predictable. I don't, I don't want to call Nate leaving and and joining Rupert's term full unpredictable. I mean, I did predict it when we had mm-hmm. that discussion, but I think that more than anything is just it the show telegraphed it really, really well they and really made did. it feel natural. So like, you know, all the discussions that we've had about like, you know, tropes and things always kind of going, you know, one way or ending in this neat little package. I felt like that it was done well enough where it wasn't that, even though we were able to see it coming, it was kind of just the perfect little telegraphing where maybe if you weren't paying as closely attention as we are talking about on a podcast, maybe you would have missed some of it. Um, or not thought about it nearly as much. But then once all of the pieces are there, you know, for somebody going and rewatching it a second time, you know, if they haven't, wa- if they've only watched the show through once, you go back and you catch all these little moments that build up to it that make it all now suddenly make a lot of sense and wash out some of those episodes like Headspace, where, you know, you're upset about some of these character choices because you feel like in just the episodic nature of the show, you don't like it. But then it all clicks together to form such a wonderful package to cap out the season for sure. And before we leave the Ted Nate, con- yeah, Ted Nate. Yeah. Um, conversation. It's the way that Ted apologized, just, it did stay in my head a little bit. He said, if I didn't tell you how important you were to me, I apologize. And in this world of sort of like apologies in the post Weinstein era of, you know, really needing to analyze the effects that we have on people uh, when like relationship partners, power dynamics. Um, There's been like an increase in the number of people like kind of coming to previous relationships and saying, hey, this bad thing happened to me. Um, I think that the conversation around apologies has been elevated. And I I think that um, to use the word if there was not as good of a thing as Ted could have done because he says, if I didn't tell you how important you were to me, I apologize. And I was sort of thinking it in the, in the way that like, um, you know, if people, you know, feel pressure into a romantic relationship with somebody or, or something, um, if somebody is like, Hey, if that's how you feel, I'm sorry. That's not, that's not 
the point. The point is this person does feel this way. So there's no if situation. You can disagree with whether or not you did or didn't do the thing. But what's important is knowing that that person does feel that way and honoring their experience. So I, I've just thought a lot about apologies um, and all sorts of different ways over the last couple of years as we're really kind of needing to make peace with our past decisions. And uh, the idea of saying, if I didn't tell you how important you were to me, I apologize. I think it should have should have been something like, I clearly didn't tell you how important you are to me. And I apologize um, to legitimize other people's experiences. Cause I think that we really do. It doesn't necessarily matter exactly what happened as much as I think what matters is how people register and feel about it and hold on to it. And that's, what's important. So, you know, obviously Ted's amazing. Um, and the show is amazing. And I just thought that that was a, an interesting thing that stood out to me. I think this is a really good point. I, I'm glad that you brought that up because I know it washed over me for a second, but sometimes it's, it's hard to focus on those words. Um, unless you're that person who's hearing them. So I think it's really good that you you uh, caught that. I think the last thing I wanted to add about the Believe poster being ripped in half on yeah. Ted's desk is that it's, it's just the continued theme of Ted not being able to have his cake and eat it too, or like not being able to enjoy the moment. It's kind of consistent theme that keeps popping up all the way back to season one when he had the panic attack when the the at the karaoke singing together and the team you know winning their football match and him having the panic attack there's uh and even just like the powerful moment of roy being there for jamie and hugging him and like kind of seeing the team continuing to grow and bond and see this you know some uh seeing roy and jamie grow as human beings and that's something that he's obviously kind of pushed them on and tried to help them develop as human beings. Every time there's these big moments um, in the team or relating to Ted's success, he's not, he's never able to fully enjoy them in the moment because there's something, something else going on detracting from it. And all the stuff with Nate and maybe him hoping that if the team wins, Nate can see what he's, what he's accomplished and uh, how much he's contributed to the team's success. But instead he finds the, the poster ripped in half on his desk and, you know, you can see in his eyes kind of welled up a bit while the team is, is celebrating and having, having their big moment. And I just, I, I thought that was really sad and really tragic that Ted does not get to enjoy the fruits of his labor. Can I think that's a continued? really fantastic point. And it didn't occur to me until you mentioned it, but I, you know, you and I both talk about having dealt with anxiety, at different points in our life. And for me, you know, I was an anxious person, but one time I had a panic attack, I've had one in my whole life, but the stain of that, you're, you look for those and you're afraid of those forever. They kind of don't ever leave you. Um, I kind of almost think that's kind of what they're getting at. Like that's the heart of anxiety in so many regards is like when things seem like they're going okay, my brain will be like, but what if they're not, or what if this? And I think a lot of times the stain or the scar of anxiety is that it does, it prevents you from being able to celebrate joy, celebrate success um, because you're worried. What if this other thing happens or what if things aren't taken care of enough? So I, I, yeah, that's a really, that's a salient point. Like back to him prepping for, you know, the funeral, like he's dancing and everything, but then it strikes, you know, these, these things can just strike out of nowhere. So, um, you not being able to let your guard guard down. What I want to make is, is a prediction just towards the future, the same that we've made a prediction about 
um, Rebecca sending Ted home. Mm -hmm. Maybe we finding out about that in the second to last episode um, is that in the final episode or maybe the second to final episode, but maybe in the final episode, maybe there's a big, maybe they win the big match that they're playing in is that Ted finally does get to enjoy the success of the moment. And there's no longer something burdening with him. And if there's, if there is a God in this universe, we will see Ted do that dance (laughs) with his team that we see in episode one that he's doing with the football team. It's yeah. just my put that out in the universe. That's how we we began the show with it. That's how we end the show with it. And we get to see Ted finally enjoy the moment of victory. Uh, at least that was what I'm feeling optimistic for um, or potentially excited for the idea of something like that. Uh, next, in season uh, three. next week, as we sort of do our wrap up for this season, um, we should do some predictions. We should do a, a little prediction section. Okay. All right. Well, so we've got some big things we can move towards uh, the Roy Keeley, Jamie thing, the Rebecca Sam thing. I think as we move towards maybe the Rebecca Sam thing, I just want to say Akufo, as it turns out, is not a good dude. So following up on our conversation from last week, he is not. We've learned that indefinitely. He was he 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 transitioned from old Elon Musk to new Elon Musk. Yeah. Just like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but, but it was nice. It was a lighthearted, funny, just hilarious moment to see. As soon as Sam breaks the news for him, you see his eyes just instantly change, and you can see how furious he is immediately. And then he just just goes off. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna buy your childhood home, and I'm gonna poop in every room, uh, and, I'm gonna, and I'm gonna burn cake. it down. <laughs> uh, it was fantastic. And then he was like choking out the, uh, the mannequin in the hallway right. and pooping on it. And, uh, and then the, the, the fake out handshake was, um, where the guy comes to give him the handshake, like, ah, oh, this was weird. I'm going to leave. I'll give you a handshake. And then does the fake out handshake. So uh, all of that, because Sam says he's not going to go, but he then comes up to the room to tell Rebecca and Ted that he's not going to be going and the thing that he says while looking at Ted is I've decided to stay and realize I need to stop worrying about how others feel about me. I'm staying because it's best for me and my personal journey. Um, how did you make that? How did that make you feel about his relationship with Rebecca or both of their feelings or possible continuity with that relationship in the future? I thought it was good. I I really liked the that Ted was there. I liked Ted's eyes were like screaming for a second, like, uh, and that Rebecca went out of her way to say, no, Ted, stay, right? She wanted yeah. to have that buffer there. And then Ted's just sitting there, kind of eyeball screaming, awkward. Uh, and then it's like, I think he was talking to you, but he was talking <laughs> to me about you. Um, but that's exactly what, the reason I think it works so well is that's exactly what we've been saying about Rebecca. Like Rebecca needing to break things off with Sam because she's still on her own personal journey and she needs to, she needs to learn more about herself and she needs to learn to love herself. And um, Sam's, Sam's going through the same journeys or acknowledging that he needs to go through a similar journey. It's not that he doesn't necessarily love himself, but he, you know, cares a lot about his homeland and, um, but sees what he's inspiring of the people, you know, he sees the, 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 the people playing soccer and a couple of them have his Jersey on and, um, probably thinking back to earlier 
in the season when he boycotts Dubai Air and makes an impact and his father congratulates him on that. Like he's making a positive impact somewhere else that's affecting his home in a positive light. And so I think that he was able to see that and now he can continue to focus on that. And if Rebecca is in the cards and a relationship with Rebecca is in the cards for him in the future, you know, that is yet to be seen. And if something happens, great. If something doesn't happen, that's okay. That's, that's not the, that's not why I'm staying. That's not what the journey is. He's not giving up on it, but he wants to do something more. And um, I think that's perfectly highlighted with him, them showing us him having purchased um, a, a, a retail space to open a Nigerian food restaurant is he wants to continue to bring his culture to another land and, and bring more focus and um, eyeballs onto, you know, his homeland in Nigeria and, and the positive impact they can have. Did you have a similar read, similar takeaway? I, I had a similar takeaway in the positive regard for it. I think that what it did for me is sort of highlight what I think is some of the negative aspects of the way Western storytelling has trended so far, which is um, I think that we create an unhealthy conversation around romantic relationships. So the part of me that wants the, like the Ross and Rachel, like I want them to get together. Um, the, you know, like I, I want Rebecca and Sam to be together cause they're so cute and it works so well in so many regards. And he said, okay, well I'll be waiting, but I'm only going to get more wonderful. I think that like a lot of tropes within sequential storytelling up until this point would say, okay, well he's going to wait for her. And then when she's ready, they'll be able to get together. And that's what relationships should be. Um, and I think that like from a storytelling standpoint, that works, but it's very troped out. You know, it's, it's kind of like, that's what you would expect. And um, I like that he's taking seriously his own personal journey now. Um, but it did sort of put a tiny bit of salt onto the slug of the idea that I'm going to be the guy that waits for you, you know, which is, I think it's a trope and a problematic one at that. And I think that relationships are strengthened when people have the, the freedom to become who their life is calling them to become. Um, but, and again, that's what I like about the show so much is that it oftentimes doesn't do the tropiest thing. It, it, uh, it, it does things I think are more pro-social in the long run, which is, I think, what this did. But I think that, um, you know, part of me also just wanted to see Sam be like, but I love you, Rebecca, and I'll be here waiting for you, right? But, like, also, that's the but more boring he said, thing. I wish I could say it was because of my feelings for you. But yeah. the truth is, I need to stop worrying about how others yeah. feel about me. I'm staying because it's best for me and my personal journey. So and that's... Another another situation where, like where I said that Nate's words sound like they could come out of Ted's son's mouth. These these words also sound like they could come out of Rebecca's mouth as yeah. well. So I just liked that that felt like they finally maybe had a bit of that synchronicity that they were on the same wavelength of, you know, what the future should hold for them. And there's uncertainty behind it, but um, you know, continue focusing on what their what their journeys are and what and they I, need to be. For sure. I just think it also allows for there to be a little bit more distance between the two of them which is probably the healthiest thing, but also the part of me that wants to eat my popcorn and watch next week for my 22 episode long season. That's going to go 10 years. You know, I want them, I just want them to be together, but like, you know, but that's, what's great too, though, is I think that it, it doesn't, it no longer defines their, them as characters as, you know, this relationship, like this relationship doesn't define who they are as characters. Whereas 
Um, I have never watched Friends. I don't think I've ever seen more than like two minutes of an episode, but I know enough about Ross and Rachel like to know that that's, that's a thing. Like that kind of defines a lot of their character traits of the show is just the Ross or the Rachel. I mean, you hear it used as yep. a, when describing other shows, is like, oh, is that going to be another Ross and Rachel situation? So that so much defines them. And I like that this separation, that even if they do have a relationship, this is not where the folk, the show is going to continue to focus on just this relationship. It's going to continue to focus on them as individuals and characters, as opposed to just an item and a will they, won't they type of a hundred percent. And also the, the problematic and kind of what I was trying to say is like the problematic nature of that storytelling creates static people. They don't have the opportunity to change and therefore the relationship can't change. So I prefer this. It just defies a little bit of uh, my growing up on in front of the television after school training that I've been trained for so long. The Rebecca quote of, you know, when Ted's had a rough night and he gives her the biscuit and he's definitely changed the salt and the sugar. And she says, you sneaky, salty bitch was so rad. It's just like Heather Locklear on Melrose Place. Oh, that's a perfect way to describe her. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, we find out when when Keely's on the phone with, well, she's, she's fielding phone calls about um, you know, the story that hit the newspaper and it turns out she's uh, rejecting a call from Piers Morgan wanting to have Ted on to talk with a celebrity therapist um, and just basically telling him to fuck off, um, which I think a lot of people want to do to Piers Morgan. But <laughs> then she gets an email uh, about uh, VCs that backed her with banter, want her to start her own PR firm. And we find out more about that when she goes to talk to Higgins and we meet the new, you know, potential mascots uh, coming in, which I think was uh, Tina Fayhound and mm-hmm. Macy Greyhound. Yep. Uh, which are wonderful dog names. But she's, I love that her conversation with Higgins, where, you know, despite Higgins being like fourth in line for this conversation, he's still <laughs> happy to have it. He keeps trying to put on ideas on why she doesn't want to tell Rebecca, like he's scared of her or it's going to be an ultimate betrayal uh, or anything like that. So I like that because it was kind of running through all of the trope reasons why she wouldn't want to tell Rebecca that she's leaving. And it dodged all of that and was just as simple as like, I don't want her to think that I'm ungrateful. Like she's done so much for me and this, this incredible opportunity has come forth. And then Higgins gives the, you know, I would say weekly, wonderful Higgins knowledge drop of good mentors think you will leave great mentors know you will leave. Uh, I thought that was wonderful. That was one of my favorite quotes of the episode. He's like, I just, I just made that up right now. Um, And inspires her to, to have those conversations. And, you know, um, then she has a wonderful moment with Rebecca and Rebecca gives her the word of advice to hire your best friend. And they have, they share some wonderful moments. So, yeah, let's let's get into that. The but the a good mentor hopes you will move on. A great mentor knows you will move on. I just love that, especially the way that it ties into that my self-labeled Nightwing syndrome. You know, from last week of just sort of like when you have a mentor, the the idea that a mentor wouldn't want you to outgrow them means you've kind of chosen the wrong mentor. You know, like so, so her having the courage you need to bring that up is was just wonderful, powerful Higgins, you pearl of wisdom of a man. You but this idea of um, hire your best friend. You and I both have employees. I don't know if you have hired friends or, you know, 
do I have a singular best friend? No, but I have a pool of like four people that are my kind of best nucleus friends. Um, I have hired friends and I have hired best friends. And I'm curious, what is your experience with that? Do you agree with Rebecca there? You know, it's funny. I thought about, I thought about you and Django when, when she said that actually, you know, I think it's probably been a different philosophy than I've always taken. And however, I've developed some incredible long-term friendships coming out of work, but I'm, I'm the type, I've always taken my job probably way more seriously than I ever needed to. And it's, it's led me to, you know, some great successes and some things that I'm very proud of and forged some incredible relationships and friendships that I continue to carry on for this day. Um, but it took me a long time to let down some barrier. I'm the type of person that was like, I'm not going to be friends on Facebook with my employees. And I don't hang out with people outside of work. Like we, we work together and I will form incredible relationships and I want to be there for everybody. But um, I also think it's inappropriate to, you know, go have beers with them. Like other than having like a Christmas dinner or things like that. Um, I've always shied away from that. But then that found me in a spot years later where all my relationships were very professional and, you know, acquaintances from the past of maybe people that I've, that have worked for me have, you know, moved on to other jobs and then, it, but I always liked them as individuals. And then it became more difficult to transition into any, any sort of friendship. So it's something that I've, I've really struggled with. And now in the last few years, as I've changed the way I've, I think about work, um, and it's still kind of a, it's still an internal struggle and battle to change that. I now find myself a lot more open to wanting to have friendships and relationships, you know, as my, as my children are getting a little bit older and I want to have a social life again, and it's not just all revolving around work and the people that I work with, um, things are a little bit different. And I, I think I really like the idea now. I think I really, I think that it can pose a lot of potential problems and a lot of inherent risks hiring or working with your best friend. And I think it, especially if one person's the boss and one person's a subordinate. Um, but if you both truly are best friends who really care about the business and what you're building towards together, you can learn to have those, you know, respectful disagreements and, um, you know, arguments about the way things need to be done and, and come back to it. But, um, it's always create. It's always it's always been an internal struggle for me. But how has it been? I mean, you are you are right in this. This is you know you run your business with one of your best friends in the whole world. Yeah, we how know what's that for you. How did this hit you? Um, well, what's interesting is that Django and I, like, so my actual business partner, um, you know, I had started working there about a year and a half before Django had, and the, you know the previous owner had passed away. Um, Django and I's relationship formed around that place. So we weren't friends beforehand. Um, and we became friends through working in the same place. I think that has worked astonishingly well um, to the point where like, yeah, it, it works really, really well. And I think we both teach each other a lot and grow a lot. Um, and I, you know, I think that if it had been friends first and then business partners, it would have been more difficult. Um, but I think that the order of operations for us worked really well to make sure we're always working in the same direction and, uh, we can kind of become better friends through this shared desire to have the same end goal for our business from a hiring perspective, kind of like Rebecca said, hire your best friend. I think I'm drawing kind of a subjective line between a friend and a best friend, because my immediate response was I have hired friends and 
I have since decided I will not do that anymore. I think an inherent power dynamic with a friend, somebody who wasn't equal, who then has to have a power dynamic difference. I really, it's hard for me to like make sure I'm friends with these people while also needing to be bosses. Cause I think kind of like we've talked about in the past, like I think it's very fair for everyone to always kind of have some amount of resentment for their boss. Cause on some regard, it's a surrendering over of the control of your life to somebody else. And that's a challenging thing for anybody. But I did recently hire someone that I would consider one of my best friends. And I think, you know, it's going really, really well. And I think that one of, you know, a friend is one thing. A best friend is somebody like you're this love you have for the person like, and this deep like your knowledge. Understanding of, is on a different level, right? Yeah. Your understanding is on a different level. So you can have those tough conversations, but your friendship has reached a level where those can take place without it necessarily um, you know, getting in the way of your friendship. Yeah. You know, uh, like I can spend a week and a half in a car with this person and have many times over the last 10 years. I don't, I'm not worried that our friendship is ever going to be in jeopardy, but I do think that if there's ever room for you to have to be worrying that your friendship might be in jeopardy to be you taking professionalism seriously, then, um, then I would say that that advice to always hire a friend is maybe not great, but then to hire a best friend, I think that's a different kind of quantity, a different, qualification of a person and it really uh speaks to the strength of those relationships and what it is to be someone's best friend so yeah i mean i i think we overlap a lot on maybe where our philosophies are at now or maybe we've even kind of trended opposing direct coming from different sides of it but yeah i think we're meeting kind of in the middle there with this idea of it is a thing you need to take pretty seriously oh i really like the way that you you uh separated the ideas of the friend and the best friend because i would i think i would still stick to that exact same ideology that, that you've said, which is the same advice that I always gave managers that are working for me is like this, you're going to feel taken advantage of at a certain point, mm-hmm. one side or the other, either the friend is going to feel taken advantage of, or the boss is going to feel taken advantage of for the friend, assuming that they're going to cut them some slack or some leeway, yep. even if it's subconsciously in it. I've seen so many people try to hire friends of theirs and then have it go very badly. And then they basically lose that friendship over it. But I didn't think about it from that aspect of how different it is with that best friend and the 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 how much change that relationship might have gone through to put you in a different spot. I really like that point. I think it's wonderfully said by you. The, um, but now we get Keely and Roy, and we talked about this a little bit and what this means for their relationship. And I think this is where I was left with maybe the biggest question mark or maybe the biggest Mm -hmm. pit in my stomach um, because Roy has been dealing with this kind of inadequacy of their relationship and that Keely looks better in the pictures without him and she's going to be too busy for him with this new job. Um, And he, you know, the, the kind of the epilogue of the episode, he buys plane tickets and says, we're going to go spend six weeks together, which is a very long vacation. It is. <laughs> we're going to spend six weeks um, before you are buried in work. She's, she says, I'm already buried in work. I started on this a week ago already. I cannot possibly go on this trip with you, but you need to go on this trip. You need to have the first, first vacation that you have had since you were 12, you know, 12 years old, where you don't have to rehab or eat healthy or do all these other things. And he's still left feeling inadequate to the point where he says, we're breaking up, aren't we? And she's like, no, not at all. Like they're on a completely different wavelength on that. And he continues to feel that. Um, And that's kind of where we're left with no real 
answer or resolution on that. And we have to wait <laughs> until next year to find out where the heck this is going to go. But what do you think, Jeff? Like this stress, this left me way more stressed out than all of the other Nate stuff. Yeah. Um, me too, because the Nate stuff, while I sympathized with him for him, uh, it was easy to also be angry with him. Whereas this it was just a sense of uncertainty that this thing that I want to exist might not exist. But I do want to stress that I love the power balance that those two have. I think that on the surface, you've got this like gruff dude in this like very social bubbly girl. Um, but what we found throughout this season is that more often than not, he is the needy one. Uh, and she is the one who is more firm or resolute in her confidence in the relationship. I just, I really like that balance and that dynamic as somebody who I think comes across much more confident than I am. Um, I'm, you know, drawn to people who can be a bit more confident and, you know, like my partner is wonderful and uh, doesn't seem to worry about things as much as I do. And in many regards, worries about crossing the street more than I do, but, um, but yeah, it's uh yeah, definitely a pit in my stomach. I can identify with Roy very much. And I think you and I are both doing that. We're like, oh my God, is he going to be relegated to the side? Is she going to be too busy for him? But she is telling him, no, I love you. You don't need to worry about that. So like, it's this question of, do I take it at face value? Do I trust this person? Am I able to be confident enough and secure enough with this relationship that it will be okay? Or is uh, uncertainty, inferiority, anxiety, something that lives within sight of us and, you know, isn't real, Like, but we, but we allow it to then drive the car. You know, that, that's maybe the question they're bringing up. I don't know. Like, do we have any reason to doubt it? We don't really have any reason to doubt it outside of the fact that Roy is voicing this concern, but Keely is being as steadfast as ever. Like she told him she loves him more than once in this episode and the security of their relationship is in so many regards in the last two episodes, never been more secure based on how they uh, relate to one another. So, you know, it's, it's that thing with me being concerned about beard. It was like, well, the only reason I'm concerned now is because of how weirdly foreboding that conversation at the end of the episode you had was, you know? Yeah. Now that, you know, just hearing you talk about it, it almost has a bit, we've already said it, but the kind of inferiority and abandonment like Keely has the Keely is almost the Ted to to Nate to the degree that she her full intention is for their relationship to continue. But as you know, somebody who's ran their own business, just like you run your own business, the ability for that business to consume you as mm-hmm. an individual and take away all your attention from everything else is very strong. You know, like Death Star tractor beam strong that it will just it'll suck you right in and make it impossible to escape. And so that's where I f- think that Roy is thinking about is she's going to be so busy. She's not going to have time and she's going to abandon him. And she's cultivated this relationship the same way that Ted cultivated this relationship with Nate. And then Nate felt abandoned. There's almost a parallel potentially happening. We'll see where it goes in the next season of Keely inadvertently abandoning Roy and this relationship that, that they've built together because she's so focused on this other job and Roy could end up in the exact same place. That's a that fantastic was parallel in, in this episode. Nice, nice find. I did that didn't occur to me, but that's a really, really good parallel. Um, and I think that it's it even speaks to the way that his anxiety started. Like when she tells him, 
he's like, look at you, boss lady. You're not going to have time for me. And they kind of gloss over it and they're still celebrating and everything's okay. But he said that thing. And then later on in the episode, or, you know, we know it's several weeks down the road, but um, that's when he's actually allowing that, that seed has been planted. And now it's manifesting to the point where he was like, are we breaking up? And it's like, oh, you just casually were just like, you're not gonna have time for me to now it's manifested to this different thing. So I think it, you know, there is this, yeah, exactly what happened with Nate. Um, seeds of doubt can get planted and we need to, you know, I was at a and wedding this really... weekend and they said something to the effect of like, it's, you know, it's like a garden and you got to pull the weeds before they grow into more large weeds. And it's like, all oh, right. Insecurity is, is like a weed you have to pull. Yeah. And they even goes so far. Like that's where I feel like the six weeks comes from. Like that is a tremendously long time. And I would love to go on a six week vacation, yeah. but it's, that much time because I feel like he's just trying to grab onto as much time and attention from her that he possibly can. It's an unreasonable amount of time and attention, but he's trying to reach and grab onto that because he feels like he, she's potentially going to be slipping away yeah. um, into this. So it's going to be, I, I think it's going to be an, uh, how much time jump we're going to have going into next season and, and where they take the relationship from there. But it's, it's interesting to kind of have that, front side back side of what could potentially come of it in the episode like we almost got the entire picture of what happened with nate in the episode but being dealt with in a, on another level with Roy and keely so yeah i really like that a lot i want to talk about some of the feel-good stuff in this episode because yeah. we've talked yes. about a lot, a lot of the heavy stuff yep um but a lot of the, some of the really feel-good stuff i think really especially focusing on the team itself and 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 the game that's being played and we see the first half of the game they um are really falling behind they're they're down down two points to zero they are all feeling pretty melancholy like a like a renaissance <laughs> yeah. painting of masculine melancholy and the coaches are struggling to figure out what's what's going to happen and then we just have you know one of the one of the feel good moments that we got really addicted to in season 1 so i just absolutely loved getting that uh, in the finale here, when Roy suggests we talk to the team, Nate wants to abandon the false nine. And um, Ted says, you know, they've had a whole, they've had the whole first half to figure out what not to do. And Roy suggests, ask the team. And they go and ask the team, hey, should we keep doing it? Or should we, um, you know, give up and do something else? And the team is all shocked and astonished. Like they couldn't believe somebody's talking to them. And um then they get some great moments of like, no, the technique is sound. You should have stopped that goal. We can do this. We should stick to this. And the whole team rallies behind it, except Isaac, who gets up and walks through and puts his hand on that Believe banner. And then everybody else follows suit. And man, what a shot to see that mm -hmm. pull away of the entire team with their hands on the banner and the coaching staff just standing there looking. And you can see, again, you can see Ted's eyes kind of welling up the pride that he has of the team really coming together like this. Um, and then they go out and Sam scores a goal and then Jamie gets, uh, gets a pass and goes to take the penalty kick and he passes the ball off to Danny Rojas to take the kick instead, who we have not seen take a penalty kick since the opening shots of season two, episode one. And just the, um, we lost that. The football is life quote there. You know, that was just like bringing it all back together was really, you know, that show demonstrating its tremendous heart. He, he looked over there and he saw Macy Greyhound sitting there with their tiny little helmet mm -hmm. on uh, to protect her head. And he just, oh man, when he says football is life, just, I don't know Goosebumps. about you, but I just, 
I get the goosebumps yeah. and he makes the goal. And it's, it's just such a great feel good moment that, um, you know, we already talked about that the Ted didn't get to, to feel, uh, uh, appreciate, but the rest of the team swept up in the moment. And that was, that was a really great, great moment for the show. And I, I enjoyed it a lot and I'm excited to see them get promoted after, um, their demotion, you know, their kind of crushing demotion of right. the season. Um, Another great moment is just uh, the press conference that he has. And then also as it relates to the absence of Trent Krim, I have an overall concern for how we deal with and discuss mental health and athletics. And I just think that like that was them putting in a single sentence, kind of the conversation this entire season has been about. Um, Love them bringing that home, him talking about it confidently, owning that. I love Trent Krim being absent. And then when he leaves, Trent's waiting for him outside and it's just like total payoff from the very first episode we have where he and Ted have that date night together. And you're just like, maybe this guy sucked, but also maybe he's really awesome. And just, he's a great dude. Going back even further. I think it's the first episode where we meet Trent Krim, the independent. And he's the first words. I think after that, he says, is this a fucking joke? Yeah. So to see how far Trent has come to how much he respects Ted and then ultimately has quit um, working for the press to pursue something else, which I think I have an inkling of what that might be. What do you think it's going to be? Um, oh, he's absolutely going to write a book about Ted Lasso. Oh, that's awesome. I think, I think that that's what he's, you know, well, we could talk about that more when we do our predictions, I suppose. But uh, I think that that's uh, what he will maybe spend a good chunk of season three doing is, is writing a book on, Ted Lasso and you know whatever underdog story or however you want to interpret the story of Ted Lasso and the effect that he's had on the team and the players that's a great one um I was kind of when Ted started talking about it I was excited to hear it and then they cut away and we don't hear the rest of Ted's conversation with the press Mm -hmm. I think at first I was maybe a little bit disappointed that I didn't hear more but then the more that I thought about it and then re-watching I felt like maybe it was just the right amount because Mm -hmm. So, so much of this season has been about mental health that perhaps if we listened to Ted talk about it for several more minutes, that maybe it would have crossed a line of being maybe a little bit too heavy handed or a little bit too preachy when it's already put a lot of emphasis on it. And that should be what our takeaway is from watching this or from multiple repeat viewings is how important mental health is. They've already, they've done exactly what they should do as a show. They shouldn't be just telling us with a monologue at the end. Uh, they should be, they should be showing us. And uh, we even, you even made reference last week, you're talking about um, Midnight Mass and we finished watching that. That show has a lot of monologues. And yeah, there's a lot does. of monologues, a lot of monologues. And there were things that I, you know, it was conversations that I was interested in, but they weren't conversations. Right. They were just monologues. And I think that was maybe what I struggled with a bit about the show is they didn't do enough showing us they were telling us a lot of these things, but not doing a good enough job really showing these things. And that kind of fizzled out for me in the end of that show because of that, um, despite totally some interesting conversations <laughs> and some concepts. So it actually really, uh, after thought, thinking about it more and seeing it that second time, that just really, really clicked for me that it was like, no, they don't need to tell us anymore. They've told it, they've shown us everything and him saying it would be too much. It's perfect. Don't yeah, we, we already alone. know it all. Um, it, I don't know if this is in the lighthearted category, but when Ted's ex-wife reaches out to him at the beginning of the episode and he tells her this joke, 
Um, and he mostly is inquiring, like, why are you up so late or up so early? Um, I like that his immediate response was he caught himself. He says, that's none of my beeswax. Thanks for reaching out. And I just thought it did a good bit at hinting at the idea that you don't just close the book on important relationships in your life. Uh, A desire to be close to those people who have impacted us haunts us and carries through haunts, you know, in some regards, stays with us in other regards. But um, I like that. I like that he caught himself there. I think we got what he was going on. And I think, you know, the, the fact that she loved that he apologized and says, thanks for reaching out. That was kind of like him at the press was, conference, all that they needed to say. And I just thought that was really, really good. There's some really good, great uh, gr- growth moments. And, you know, Ted also got a message from Rebecca and he got an audio message from Dr. Sharon, kind of everybody being there for him. Cause this is, I mean, he's combustible during this time. He's seeing the news commentators talking about it. Um, and the, one of them is, you know, saying like, oh, this is, you know, bullshit. He shouldn't, he's not fit to be a coach. So he's got all of these ideas in his head that it's, he's prime and then ready for a panic attack. And he goes outside and he walks through the alleyway and everyone's reading the newspapers and looking at him. And, but then it almost seems like he's about to have a panic attack and then Beard is there for him. And the old guy comes up. I thought this was an interesting moment when the old guy comes up and, you know, Hey, Hey, wanker. If my my father had a panic attack in Normandy, we would all be speaking German right now. And I hung on that quite a bit because I can, like, pretty sure we have fair amount of information to know that soldiers, these boys that were mm-hmm. on the invasion of Normandy, many of them were having panic attacks. I think that's illustrated, you know, watching like Saving Private Ryan, you see them having panic attacks as it's happening. Um, and then many, many of them suffer P- PTSD, but I think it shows the maybe the growth, like the old fashioned mentality behind it is like that this isn't a thing that, you know, men struggle with or suffer from. And he's still stuck in this world, despite an abundance of evidence of people around him and even history with his parents, most likely um, or almost certainly have suffered panic attacks. But how far we've come now uh, as people to feel comfortable talking about it. And then also with Coach Beard, to feel comfortable when not talking about it. When Ted's like, I bet you knew what that was all about. And Coach Beard says, no idea. And he's got the newspaper right. in his back pocket. Cause it's like, we don't need to talk about this right now. We I think we, we can talk about other things. I think that the old man, I you know, I had a note about that as well, because he criticizes Ted, but then he makes some effort to console him. And what I thought was interesting in that bit about him walking through and kind of on the verge of a panic attack, what I feel like it really just highlighted um the the general population of the world has like when people bring up mental health issues like it's a combination of support confusion anger and compassion like people don't really know what to do with it and i think the responses from the people around him at that time supported his need to say i have a concern about how we deal with mental health and athletics because people aren't just being mean to him. He calls him a wanker, but he's like, just do the work and you'll be okay. Like, it's this weird, we just haven't talked about it enough. So people don't really know how to respond. They're like, is that the guy who had a panic attack? Oh, I'm like, oh, I think it's him. It's going to be okay, guy. But also you're consoling him while othering him by staring at, like all of this is this, it just highlights um, the the lack of conversation society as a whole has had about mental health. So I, I did, I like that old man sentence there. And I, I think that it kind of, all of that fed into this idea of like his call to action with needing to be vulnerable and help educate people about it. Absolutely. Good point. 
I just I'll just want to randomly throw this out there because I wanted to talk about it in a previous episode, and it's such a random throwaway moment that I never got a chance to bring it up. But the fact that Roy can't use a whistle, yeah, and he yells it, whistle, it whistle, gives him a reaction, so he just yells whistle, whistle. So when they had to leave the track to go run on the other one because the helicopter's still there, you just hear him whistle, whistle. Yeah. Uh, such a great recurring moment that we've never had a chance to talk about. I I love it. I think doesn't it give him like a you know like a some sort of reaction by using a whistle? Cheap metals, yeah. I've um, I've had partners who like are <laughs> can't wear certain earrings and stuff. How about beard just being totally done with Nate? Like I just love you know Ted needs to have an I'd amount of I'd be happy to headbutt you, Nate. <laughs> exactly. Like I I love that. I love the sort of in the same way that Sassy was is willing to just be openly terrible to Rupert while Rebecca needs to kind of not allow him to know how much he gets under her skin. I just love Ted's got to be mature about this neat stuff, but I love that. Like, you know, when he brings up the, you know, isn't this horrible? He's like, it's horrible. He's like, yeah, it really was horrible. You know, like, just like he's, I like that he's in there jabbing instantly and he could see right through Nate. Yeah. uh, Calling him out on that. Yeah. I had, I just had a general note that like the beard is just such a great friend to Ted. Like he, you know, is there for him in the beginning and then they're having the beer together and it's like, you've got to talk to Nate and he's, he sees through the whole thing. He knows instantly that it's, that it's Nate. Like Ted knows because Trent told him, but Beard just knows because it's obvious. He's just been watching um, Nate and that he's there become a butthole. Yeah. He's, he's seen <laughs> Nate be an asshole. He's the one who's witnessed some of these moments that Nate's, Nate's had throughout the show. Um, and then just a another you know quick feel good moment, or at least made me feel good about the direction that they decided to go with it, which was uh, Jamie apologizing to Roy, yep, and just kind of owning it. So I think a couple of weeks ago when we talked about it, I was like, I hope that um, Keely kind of puts him in his place and says, you know, you're just in love with the idea of me, and you've grown as an individual, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it kind of was that, but it was Jamie, which I think that makes it even even better. better for Jamie to be able to grow as an individual and say, I was wrong. It, I'm not used to being around dead people. It's, it makes me emotional. It did something to me. And I, he's, I, you know, I really respect you. I respect Keely and I respect your relationship. And I thought that was really powerful. And that, you know, Roy, Roy says he forgave Jamie, but all he really did was yell fuck and storm out of the room. So I wasn't sure how genuine it actually was when he said he forgave him. So more of anything, Roy internally forgave Jamie, but didn't know how to articulate it. So right. that's the most he was able to articulate his forgiveness is by yelling fuck. Um, and then to see that Will was just standing in the back of the room. Yeah, the sound the that he makes room, is like, so good. <laughs> uh, I, didn't, I didn't know what to do when you guys came in. I just froze. Um, was great it was great will uh as we've demonstrated i could sit here and talk to you for another hour about the great episodes of this moment but i have to know both of us have an appointment looming here um so we're gonna have to uh, put a pin in our joyous zoom calls and do some what i imagine our business zoom calls here um, but I do want to give everyone the option to send us an email at tedlasbros at gmail.com t-e-d-l-a-s-s-b-r-o-s at gmail.com and you can mention what episodes it's regarding um we're gonna get back here next week and sort of talk about this season our thoughts for the following season as things are gonna be coming up predictions and whatnot and then we'll probably take a week off and then we'll start back on the beginning of the series rewatch and we'll finally get this podcast feed set up and have it uh, at a an order that makes sense so episode one isn't just randomly in the middle of season two um but yes, Will, thanks a ton as always for hanging out and doing this with me. 
Thank you for having me, Jeff. And uh, before we go, I'll just leave you with uh, another visit, unless you have any quotes of the episode that you wanted to share. You know, my my favorite thing um, is the dual, a good mentor hopes you'll move on, a great mentor knows you will, but also just that every choice is a chance. And I'm sorry I didn't give myself the opportunity to gain trust with you all when Ted is apologizing to the team for not having been open. I think that was such a great way of phrasing. I didn't give myself the opportunity to gain trust. And that's a really adult way of looking at things. Well, so checking in with Ted Lasso Twitter. Our season comes to an end tomorrow. If this was all a dream, I hope I at least wake up in bed next to Bob Newhart. <laughs> See you next week. See you next week. Thank you.